Let the team at Black Hills Information Security test your defenses. With over 10 years of experience in penetration testing, red teaming, and threat hunting, the testers at Black Hills will help you find the holes in your security before the bad guys do. The team at Black Hills cares about educating and sharing their knowledge by creating countless blogs, open source tools, and webcasts for you to learn more about the tradecraft of pen testing and red teaming. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash BHIS to join their mailing list and view the latest blogs and webcasts from Black Hills Information Security. These days, it's rarely a case of if you'll be hacked and more of a question of when. Once the attacker has passed your defenses, they cover their tracks and systematically infiltrate your network to steal information or shut your business down. You need to rethink the way security is delivered for your digitally transformed business. And there's one security solution that delivers it all, NetScout. Get visibility without borders for consistent detection, mitigation, and prevention across any network, data center, cloud, 5G, and more. Learn more at securityweekly.com forward slash NetScout. Scout. Welcome, everyone. We're at Black Hat Day 2 of Black Hat 2019, uh, and I'm very excited about this interview because we get to talk about firmware, which is our audience knows is one of my passions to talk about and nerd out about firmware. Uh, and with me to do that is Yuri Bulligan. He's the founder and CEO of Eclipsium. Yuri, welcome. Um, hi, Paul. Thanks for having me here. Yes, nice to have you here. So uh, for our audience, Yuri, I know you and I have chatted before, and I love what you guys are doing. But for our audience, describe the problem that you solve. Um, absolutely. Uh, well, if we 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 uh, hear a lot about this software problem, software vulnerabilities, malware, ransomware, and if we take any device, there's a lot of software. There's operating system, applications, um, all of them have vulnerabilities, can be exploited, malware can get introduced on the device, but software is just the topmost layer. Mm -hmm. And if you look at each device, you have hard drive. It has its own operating system, its own software stack, network mm -hmm. stack, well, potentially. Mm -hmm. um, network cards, same thing. It has its own operating system, its own software inside of it. Uh, the BIOS, UEFI, embedded controllers, baseboard management controllers and servers that um, kind of manage uh, or provide lights out management of those uh, servers and data centers. And largely these are all firmware that exist um, on these specific yep. pieces of hardware, right? Firmware in a sense that the kernel operating system file system is all bundled together and lives on this devi device yeah. inside the computer. Generally, they have their own OS, their own code, a lot of code, millions of lines of code mm -hmm. that manufactured by or developed by uh, manufacturers of those components and all of that is kind of embedded into those components and that's right. what, yeah, what firmware is. Typically not like so. Linux or something, like it's firmware that we think about that we'd put on different devices, right? It's proprietary firmware, essentially. Yes, uh, can be uh, can be Linux based, mm -hmm. can can uh, can be based on um, other um, uh, other operating systems yep. uh, or can be completely proprietary. But there's just a lot of it. If you take just one component, uh, let's say UEFI, in a, that goes into any laptop, mm -hmm. any server, um, it's not a monolithic piece of firmware. It generally has like 300 to 600 executables inside of it, wow. implementing full network stack. It's like the un undiscovered attack surface, right? As you describe just how much code and and how many applications are on there. It's a huge attack surface, and that's just one component you're yep, referring to. It absolutely is uh, 
a very large attack surface comparable to the entire attack surface of the whole uh, um, uh, software stack on each device. Um, and um, um, this is just one component, but if you take uh, a server, it can have up to 100 components yeah. like that. Right, right. And I think what also people may just not have considered and are thinking like old school, typically when we updated the BIOS, for example, we needed physical access to the system. And I, I truly believe that there is kind of that notion today that, well, I don't need to worry about the security because, well, someone had to be physically there. But you fast forward to today, the operating system has access to all of these hardware components and their firmware and software running on them, mostly. Absolutely. And, uh, and the reason is that because firmware is so complex, uh, the uh, manufacturers of uh, those devices, mm -hmm. they need an ability to patch uh, bugs in that firmware, to patch security bugs in mm -hmm. that firmware. So they need an ability to install updates uh, through the operating system, sometimes remotely uh, through other mechanisms. So there are plenty of um, uh, ways to update firmware exists on every device. Mm -hmm. And uh, a lot of those mechanisms aren't as secure. Some of them lack any security whatsoever. For example, signatures over those firmware updates. Mm -hmm. uh, this is a yes. still a common place. And uh, this is how um, this is how malware and the attackers are um, getting into the firmware. And I think that's the other misconception: is that well, we've heard about these firmware attacks for a while, and you know, no one was really doing that. But that's obviously not. You folks found some some pretty interesting malware uh, specimens that were running around on firmware, right? Well, absolutely. There are uh, there are implants that exist for different. Um, types of firmware. Mm -hmm. uh, UFI is one of them, but there are implants that exist for firmware on other devices. And what, what was the, the kind of popular one that you guys were talking about uh, in attack more um, recently? One more recent one uh, that comes to mind is Lojax yes. implants mm -hmm. that was infecting UEFI uh, that was discovered in the wild. Um, it was used by Sednet, um, by uh, APT28 group. Um, uh, it's an interesting piece of malware because um, um, it's not the new type of um, uh, implant like that. Mm -hmm. We've seen um, uh, UFI implants before from mm -hmm. hacking team, and uh, there are indications for um, uh, implants that were attacking MacBook UFI yep, um, yep. firmware um, from Vault 7 disclosures like Dark Matter uh, and the Sonic Screwdriver. Mm -hmm. But this was discovered in the wild as part of a campaign, um, and... Um, uh, it was exploiting a vulnerability mm -hmm. to get into the UFI and infect uh, UFI firmware. And the reason it was doing is to get persistence. Persistence, right. Because even when you reimage the operating system or you do any detection within the operating system uh, or you do any incident response, mm -hmm. um, Lojax could still reinfect the OS after reinstall and mm -hmm. bypass those, um, those measures, those right. detection. And, and it's a... The UEFI has basically unrestricted access to the operating system, Absolutely. Right? which I think is an important point yep. that many not can not consider. It doesn't matter what OS protections, like you said, are in place. It can just still reimplant itself. Absolutely. It has full control over the uh, entire operating system, mm -hmm. entire software stack on a device, uh, including um, hypervisor and um, VMM. For example, if you take Windows 10, mm -hmm. which has... Uh, uh, really great uh, security architecture uh, based on the uh, virtualization-based security, based on the kind of a special um, you know, version of a Hyper-V underneath it. Um, 
the UFI implants bypass all of that, mm -hmm. including all the capabilities that are based on that virtualization-based security um, and any other protection that is really um, uh, that is really implemented and enforced in the software. For right. example, we all think that BitLocker is a hardware technology, but the reality is BitLocker is really a, a software-based mm -hmm. uh, full-disk encryption. It works with the TPM trusted platform module in order to um, kind of um, uh, in order to protect from evil-made type of attacks against the bitloaders. But right, if right. you have an implant in the UFI, mm -hmm. then you can still introduce that evil-made attack against the BitLocker and, and capture the. Uh, the PIN or the passwords that user enter. Now, given the risks that we just spoke about and the uh, you know capabilities this gives you, the fact that we've seen it in the wild means that everyone's updating their firmware today, right? <laughs> I wish. <laughs> That's your goal, maybe, right? Yeah. Maybe, maybe, uh, yeah, maybe we'll um, we'll um, um, we'll have some influence on that. But this is absolutely the first uh, thing that uh, we need to um, establish as mm -hmm. an industry. Uh, it's the first. Uh, it's a basic hygiene. Right. Uh, we do that in software. There's so much firmware. We have to do that in the firmware as well. Right. And I, I have a lot of theories, but I want to hear from you. Why don't pe more people pay attention to this and include it in their regular patching cycles? It's a uh, it's a bit more complicated because uh, there are many vendors of devices. They have their own uh, update capabilities. Mm -hmm. Then there are different uh, devices on each a system, on each uh, laptop and server. Mm -hmm. Those have their own tools and methods to update firmware on them. So there are hundreds of just the update tools. Some of those update tools also have some pretty serious vulnerabilities. Was um, it the Lenovo patched a vulnerability not that long ago? Uh, the update tools are great entry to um, uh, for attackers. Uh, mm -hmm. Most recently, I think the Shadowhammer campaign uh, mm -hmm. that was um, that was uh, targeting Asus uh, live update utility yep. that was delivering firmware updates on um, Asus systems. Mm. Um, but uh, absolutely, uh, um, update utilities um, are an important vector because their mm. whole purpose is to update the firmware. Is to interact so, with that firmware, yeah. right. So, yeah, so that's any one way in. Yeah. Uh, also, I think people don't like think about it. Like they've got so much on their plate. They're like, I'm struggling to keep my apps, my operating system up to date. Things go wrong, I'm just going to wipe it. Now you're adding on top of that, how do they manage all of these different subsystems uh, together? And, and that's what I love about your solution, quite frankly, to cut Thank to you. the chase, <laughs> is that it gives you that one unified platform um, that is important for security, but also for you know general operations, right? I mean, it, having that visibility into what firmware is running, uh, is the latest version, are there bugs, is there security uh, issues, right? And that's what- uh, Absolutely, built. and um, you know, IT security teams and organizations, they're swamped with all sorts of things. And the uh, last thing they want is to try to find all of those hundred update utilities for mm -hmm. firmware components on uh, all of their assets that they have in their infrastructure and uh, learn how to use them mm -hmm. uh, to update the firmware. Uh, so what we um, 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 what we are uh, hopefully um, uh, solving is um, is uh, taking that complex area and simplifying that for mm -hmm. uh, for people who are tasked to protect their uh, organizations. Uh, simplifying by providing a, a, a one way to uh, see the versions of the firmware, see what mm -hmm. they have in, what they have in the, uh, in, in their devices. Right. Um, do including they, do they have to put an agent 
I can't I can't remember now when we did the uh when we chatted last. Is is there an agent and agentless option? Uh absolutely we support okay. both. Yeah, that's um, what I thought. They can they can run all the time and uh monitor each device um mm-hmm. in real time. Uh or they can just scan device um uh when uh, and then it, re- it removes itself hoc. from the system, right? Once yeah, it, it does it. Yeah, I gotcha. Now the other thing that I like is even if you use those update tools, some or all of them from the manufacturers, you're not going to gain visibility into has my firmware already been trojaned from the manufacturer or an attacker, you know, after the fact. And that is a benefit of your platform. It's going to tell me wha- about those conditions that maybe I've got some firmware that has already been, um, has malware inside of it. Uh, yes, because, uh, uh, you know, uh, doing basic hygiene and firmware is the f- step one. Mm-hmm. But once you uh, once you ensure that the firmware is patched, or sometimes you may not want to patch some firmware mm-hmm. on your critical assets because you don't want to, uh, server downtime or, or right. so. Uh, but in, um, once that hygiene is in place, um, or you kind of uh, make the uh, risk-based decision uh, not to patch, then you want to monitor uh, those devices if they have been really implanted, mm-hmm. they have been compromised. Um, uh, in uh, one of those uh, dozens of firmware components, mm-hmm. uh, again, either in the supply chain or when a uh, device is traveling uh, to or working out of remote location or um, just as part of the operation, um, you know, targeted by a, a campaign that uses mm-hmm. uh, firmware implants for persistence, uh, like uh, like Lojax. So um, absolutely, this is uh, this is our goal to um, to ensure that those devices have not been compromi- compromised and uh, or tampered. And you do that in a, in a couple different ways. There's like a signature matching, obviously, um, but then you can also look inside some of that firmware and determine if there's components in there that indicate a compromise. Correct? Uh, yes, we do look uh, inside each firmware component mm-hmm. um, and also hardware components, mm-hmm. um, and uh, one of the uh, uh, effective mechanisms is, uh, uh, for the firmware is to apply whitelisting, because firmware is uh, isn't like software that um, you know users install their applications right, inside yeah, firmware. Yeah. They they generally don't, and so firmware is relatively static from mm-hmm. that perspective, and so uh, we can uh, we can ensure that all of the firmware components. Uh, they have been really developed by the manufacturer of the device or right. that component. Even um, if they're not signing their firmware, you can still basically uh, hash it right into yeah, the Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and of course, uh, of course, um, um, we can apply other techniques like static analysis, yep. like yep. behavioral analysis of uh, how the hardware behaves, mm-hmm. um, and also detect um, known IOCs of known uh, known threats. Yep. That's all of that applies, just like in the software, all of that applies to the firmware world. That's awesome. If folks uh, want to learn more and uh, get a demo or a trial, uh, how do they do that? Uh, the best way is uh, our website, eclipsium.com, um, and um, I'm uh, happy to um, connect. That's awesome. Yeah, I've, I've seen the demo. It's really, it's really fabulous. You guys have done a uh, great job. Both. Great job. And I hope our audience goes and checks it out because I feel like this is – one of the sleeping giants that like when not as many people are paying attention to this as I believe they should. So it is the biggest gap in, uh, in, uh, in the security today, I believe. Awesome. Yuri, thank you so much. Thank you, Paul. Thanks for having me. We're here at Black Hat 2019. I am here with 
the unicorn, and Bryson Bort, the founder and CEO of Scythe. Bryson, welcome. Welcome to my show, Mr. Asadorian. If you were a Bond villain, would your name be Grimm? Would it Professor be Grimm? Grimm? Professor, Professor Grimm. Grimm. Professor Grimm. <laughs> has a little bit of a ring. Um, I never thought of myself as an academic. Right. <laughs> I, I always, you know, liked to, to do things. It seemed I, you would fit the evil professor role, I think, very, very well. Well, why is it? Well. is it? Is it the eyebrow? It's just the, the demeanor. The demeanor. Uh, yeah. It, 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 the level of intelligence coupled with the demeanor. Professor Grimm. Well, I can fake intelligence when we're recording these things and then yeah. re-recording them. Like, this is what, our, like, sixth take? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, it's good to have you uh, here and do an interview live with the unicorn as well. Uh, we wanted to talk about some of uh, your research and talks in the IoT space. I think we've got similar experience in that we looked at vulnerabilities and different methods of attack, talked about them, and then, like, lo and behold, years later, we're like, oh, yeah, look at that. Attackers are doing that today. And you've got a similar <coughs> story. Yeah, yeah. So um, two... RSAs ago, um, I put together a talk um, called uh, No IOUs for IoT because, mm -hmm. you know, 50% of a talk is the name and that's what they accept you on. And then they're like, yeah, he wrote words or something. Um, and uh, then uh, and I gave this talk uh, at uh, B-Sides Las Vegas mm -hmm. last night. Um, but what was kind of like the, the scripted for it was that uh, just this week, uh, the Russians were mm -hmm. disclosed um, with their hands in the cookie jar doing the exact TTP that I've been talking about for the past two years. Mm -hmm. So, Boris, I'm watching you. I want royalties on that. Um, and what they did is uh, there were three classes of IoT devices that they hacked into. Mm -hmm. Because where I was going with my talk is it's not the IoT device itself that most folks care about. Mm -hmm. right? There's nothing really interesting on it. There's not a lot it can do unless you have lots of them, you know, a.k.a. what happened to Brian Krebs where he yep. was DDoSed across a million devices from mm -hmm. a mass compromise. Um, and that's, that's the start for the talk, because I show how easy it is to get lots of devices. Because mm -hmm. as an attacker, it's just surface area to start. I just want to begin somewhere, and I don't always necessarily care, depending on what it is. Obviously, the Russians were probably a little more targeted, mm -hmm. but kind of more the shotgun blast of what can I get in that sort of space. So what they did is they compromised these three classes of IoT devices and then used them to laterally pivot with mm -hmm. traditional computer network operation offensive techniques into traditional IT enterprise where there are things of interest, right? That's the data that I but really want. Now, they weren't doing anything difficult, such as like creating their own firmware for the device and trojaning it and then uploading it. That was uh, some of my things I talked about because I liked the Hollywood script kind of style behind <laughs> that. Like it'd be really cool if I could modify the firmware and then trojan it and then replace it and then the user would use the IoT device. They'd have no idea, but I'd secretly be listening. It's not even that complex. Not even that complex. And I was just thinking of our personas here. The next time I come on Security Weekly, I'm going to have to wear like wire rim glasses. Yes. For Professor Grimm. Yes, Professor Grimm. And you Grimm. clearly have the Hollywood glasses. <laughs> These are my Hollywood glasses. <laughs> yes. um, no, that's, that's the thing. You don't even have to be that clever. Mm -hmm. um, if you look at the, the threat landscape of, of what we've seen, um, these are consumer devices with mostly consumer-grade security. Mm -hmm. And that statement alone is pretty much an oxymoron. Right. And uh, so the the biggest attacks that we've seen have worked because most IoT devices uh, ship with default credentials. Mm -hmm. So here's something you don't monitor. The consumer's definitely not paying attention. Mm -hmm. There's no lockout if I log try to log into it too many times. So there's you know kind of like ten default password combinations of user mm -hmm. ID and password. And, and most I, devices today, because I think they're more powerful, you do get to end up with a shell. I feel like 10, yes. 15 years yes. ago, like 
getting an actual shell like that isn't even included on the device because yep. it was so small. But yep. today, that's pretty. That's possible. Yeah, I get shell. Um, they have a communications protocol of some type. Mm -hmm. I I love it when I get TCP/IP because that makes it much easier for it's me awesome. to do those kinds of things. Yep. Um, in the case of the Russians, they did TCP dump, mm -hmm. which of course was available because I had that. Uh, you know, that's there. Um, and so yeah, as the as they've gotten increasingly more sophisticated, well slightly more sophisticated, they now mm -hmm. do have those kinds of things that start to bleed a little bit more into the traditional offensive operations, mm -hmm. and I can take advantage of those. And so what we showed in, um, oh yeah, so, so the, that first kind where I'm just, I'm getting access to get that shell with mm -hmm. default credentials. And then the other part of it is the fact that, um, and you can go on GitHub, right? I actually show this as a part of my talk. Go on GitHub and just look for proof of concept for IoT vulnerabilities. Mm -hmm. So these are, you know, folks out there who probably have responsibly disclosed it, but there were 28,000 commits that I found. Wow. So you don't even have to know what you're doing. Just copy somebody's code. Yep. Make sure it matches the device because, oh, by the way, Census or Shodan will do that for me. So yep. I get the exact firmware. I get the device and I go, does this match this? It does. Drop the proof of concept that I'm on. I've mm -hmm. got shell, mm -hmm. right? I didn't even have to do anything other than just establish to a connection to your IP to, to be able to do that. Um, <laughs> and you're on, mm -hmm. right? Uh, so with no technical talent, you can actually take over all of these devices. And then it's just a simple script to run and be like, well, what can I see? Because I have that capability that's on that device to see right. what other things are on it. I basically have a Linux box on their internal network. Bingo. Yeah. So now I've got Linux. It's not running Kali. It's running some... <laughs> You're limited, janky sure, Linux. depending on the device. Yep, yeah. Some janky Linux that, mm -hmm. uh, you know, probably was built by somebody who doesn't even exist I, anymore. You could probably go on GitHub and find binaries for that. Yep. You, don't, you don't even have to, like, cross-compile, which makes me want to tear my eyeballs out. You can save that That's step. That's called convenience, Paul. Right. <laughs> go on GitHub and just pull the binary and upload it, and now I'm off to the races. Yeah. yeah. So people don't patch these things. People mm -hmm. aren't monitoring these things, and they're out there with incredibly vulnerable to both of those approaches. Mm -hmm. um, and again, once you're on, you now have this enhanced capability to go back to your traditional penetration testing, red teaming, or you know, nation state offensive operations. I mean, very easy to hit file share, start probing the domain. That, right? And that's what, I do, that's what I do in my talk, mm -hmm. is I just start doing that. And then um, from there, um, in, the, in the particular demonstration, I do um, an end day exploit, um, and I'm able to get the password decrypted i then just do dictionary style attacks against the file shares that i see mm -hmm. with combinations of that password because most folks don't change it yep and at that point i'm on and some devices even have information about the domain like a printer sometimes will have mm -hmm. information about the domain so i don't even have to scan and nope. broadcast like it's just there for me to look at absolutely and so again consumer environment nobody's looking at it yep. um, enterprise environment Theoretically, folks are, but usually they get a little bit confused when IoT devices are starting to do these things because they do it a little bit differently, mm -hmm. and then they, it just sort of is ignored. Um, and that's I, I, I try to go into that talk with a lot more detail on um, the enterprise response, both at a policy and a technical level of uh, what you have to do to really understand that that piece. It's like yeah. we're going back to the 80s. <laughs> let's, let's start right. figuring out everything that's going on our network again. And, um, and I always said like with an IoT device, like a printer or whatever it is, it doesn't have a monitor, mouse, keyboard. There's no user sitting in front of it. There's typically not very good logging. It's not being monitored like a server or a container process even, right? Not it, at all. It's just kind of there. <laughs> and no one, like you said, no one's really paying attention to it. It's the perfect playground for attackers. 
and uh, that's why I've been demonstrating that for the past two years until mm. the the Russians got using the techniques I was talking about. Yeah. Now, in in your space, you know, breach and attack simulation, right? Um, and from defenders in general, like, how do we deal with the IoT? This device that we've basically just established as it's there, no one's paying attention to it. Mm -hmm. How do we? get people to pay attention to it, what do they need to do? So this, this fits nicely with, with our hypothesis. As the IoT device itself is, it, it has no organic value, right? I'm not doing anything on the device of interest, it's mm -hmm. what I do from the device that's of interest. Right. And so I classify that into the way that I look um, at the, the whole kill chain of the problem from a defensive perspective, which is fundamentally me being on an IoT access, a device in your environment is the same thing as me having gotten initial access to anywhere else in your environment. Mm, so from, from that view, mm -hmm. just looking at it conceptually, it doesn't matter, right? right. I, haven't, I haven't accomplished anything as an attacker yet just because I've exploited a desktop that's not my final destination right. or that IoT device or whatever because at the end of the day, I land, I try to figure out where I am, am I safe? And then I start looking at what's of interest. What do you have that meets what I want to do? Right, and I. So it's eat more about detecting and preventing the lateral movement Bingo. than it is the initial infection. Bingo. I mean, that's really what security is about today, because we know attackers are going to get in somehow, some way, if they're persistent enough, and it's about detecting that lateral movement or preventing it, and and or that's, modeling it. Yeah, yeah, or modeling. Well, we don't just model it; we show it. It show. Yeah, it's not even a model, right? Nope. You actually do the lateral movement, so you can understand how this would happen. Uh, yes, and this is, this is where I saw us as a unique solution in the breach and attack simulation mm. space is um, one, I mean, this, this goes from the uh, couple of decades of real offensive experience that I have. Mm -hmm. um, several of the folks on my team have worked for me in those places before, mm -hmm. um, and we've been doing this for real for a long time. Um, and so it was really fun to kind of be like, oh, let's just do this commercially. Right, right. Um, and that's where our platform is different is um, this thing is going to come in and it's going to work just like a real attacker. Mm -hmm. It's going to be able to build itself up. It's going to be able to modify itself. It's going to be able to look around and take the information so that it can move through your environment to what's of interest from that adversary's perspective that you're simulating. Yep. It's not modeled, right? We're simulating in the production environment to see where does it get to something of interest. Right. And it, how does it get it out? And how does it get it out? Because we need, once, once I've got on that box, the clock starts ticking for measuring the metric to when the security team yep. can identify what's happening. And every time I'm doing something, I'm providing that data point to be able to determine that. Yep. And so as this thing's moving through, those are, you know, it's building up the log of where you should have first identified mm -hmm. and figured that out. Just like a real red team. Yeah. Only this case, it's able to be doing it against, you know, concurrently against the entire enterprise all at once right. through a common operation And you've added portal. some more automation for that lateral movement recently too, yeah. right? So you could basically like script the attack once you get in and laterally move. Yeah, so uh, we, we'd already had a lot of the capabilities to, um, to support lateral movement through different kinds of escalation of privileges mm -hmm. and techniques for that. Um, uh, credential theft, mimicats. Um, there, there were a lot of ways that were already there on the platform, but what we did in uh, response to user demand is we actually built an automated workflow for that when you're building out the synthetic mm -hmm. malware that you, you're, you want to test with. And so the user can now sit there and be like, all right, well, I want it to be able to, once it does this, I want it to be able to take this information, then try to do that, and then try to worm its way through. So it will then laterally move itself, right? I'm right. going to use that successfully over here. 
And the other fun part that I like is it now includes what we call a battlefield visualization. So you can see the whole network of compromised hosts and mm -hmm. how you're able to move through it and what it's doing at each point visually through the, that's awesome. the console. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, because I think a lot of us, you, whether you're red team, blue team, right, you're like, well, I read about or someone told me about once they got in, they did this and Mimikatz and then this and this and this. Now you can just string that together and go, yeah, see what that looks like on my on my network. Yeah, that's that's the that's where I think we've we are bringing um, a real purple solution to the market. Right, yeah. we came from the red and the offensive side, but there's a significant benefit and a way of bringing that collaboration that we've talked about always about how do attack and defense play together. Well, in this case, what you build up here on the attack side, you can share that directly through the same platform, so mm -hmm. that the blue team afterward has that malware with all those things built in. To now go, okay, well, let's test this as we continue to try to figure out how do we refine our detections. Did these controls work? Like, I can mm -hmm. continue to do that. Um, and then the I, other... I like it. It's kind of like agile development, but for your infrastructure. Absolutely. And that's, that's another area where we see um, kind of like it even <laughs> sort of a little bit further out there mm -hmm. is um, imagine DevOps now being able to include that as a part of the testing for what they're, they're going to be releasing. Mm. Right? The, the, the part that needs to work is this thing needs to be easy enough to use that I as a developer don't I don't want to understand all the intricacies or make this thing hard to use right um, I just want to be given here's some specifications here's a binary what happens mm -hmm. right I click the binary and I see what happens or I inject the DLL and I see what happens right like very from my view very simple things and all of what it does is just baked into it so I don't have to worry about it it's like right. running an automated regression test only with you know offensive synthetic malware. Well, yeah, I mean, regression testing for security, which is important. I mean, I, I feel like everyone should, I wish I had that in my DevOps chain right now. I'm working on building it. Maybe we should talk after <laughs> uh, after this interview, so. After I finish compromising your webcam, I'll do that. Okay, perfect. <laughs> uh, Mac OS support yep. uh, is included now. Yep. So now you've got uh, Windows, Linux, and Mac yep. covered. Uh, that's awesome. And if people want uh, a demo or a trial, they can go to, is it securityweekly.com forward slash site? That's the works. Scythe.io. Right? Yeah, I'm pretty sure. I mean, direct is scythe.io. Um, we we like uh, our tech to speak for itself. I mean, as much fun as it is to get the, the dog and pony show. Right. Um, I think it's no better than we'll give a free trial and you That's see right, you do yourself. have a You do have a free we trial. We do free trials. Okay, right. Yeah. No, we, we like the tech to speak. I mean, we've yeah. created it. We're the only folks on the planet who've built this right now. That I'm. We And we keep looking. We haven't seen anybody else who does <laughs> just in time compiled synthetic malware to specification. Yep. yep. Um, and so that's that's a strange concept and more folks are starting to get it and mm -hmm. we, we're building a customer base and we have more customers as we, you and I were joking before. Awesome. He's like, you're like, what's different? I'm like, well, now we have more people paying and you're like, well, what's going to be next? More people. More. Yeah. yeah. So we, we've already, you know, we're, we're getting onto, uh, you know, a couple of hands and toes of, of folks who use this regularly and pay for it. Um, but going back to the point, um, we want, you to play with it yeah, right just free trial cool. try it out right. and um i think the most common use case we get is is um because you know what can i do in two to four weeks when you already have a full job and you're doing all these other things typically folks are already there's some procurement for some other security mm -hmm. application or something or appliance and they use our platform to validate it right yeah and so they okay our platform has become um the most common trial we've seen is folks doing bake-offs using our platform to see what works or doesn't and the best part about that is it's not like a lab setup of um, here's some artificial things that we're going to run to test if this EDR does this or does that 
they can employ it in their environment under their own configurations and mm -hmm. see what happens on right. the host and network at the same time. It's awesome. Bryson, thank you so much for coming on Security Weekly. Thanks, man. Welcome to Security Weekly. I'm your host, Matt Alderman. This is day two of Recording Live at Black Hat 2019. We are at the suite of Mandalay Bay, and joining me for this interview segment is Dan Cornell, the founder and chief technology officer for Denim Group. Welcome. No, thank you. So I love this topic, uh, injecting SEC into DevSecOps. Right. Right. A lot of people talk about DevSecOps, but I think very few really understand what it's going to take to make DevSecOps work. Mm -hmm. and, and the way I've always framed the issue and, and we'll get into this discussion quickly, is on one side you have DevOps looking for speed and agility, mm -hmm. and on the other side you're looking for security to understand is the app secure and compliant, mm -hmm. right? And those two don't always mesh well when you think about bringing the speed and agility of what DevOps is trying to do with kind of our old processes of security. Right. So let's start there a little bit and start talking a little bit about some of the challenges you see when it comes to security in, in DevOps. All right. And so I, the way that we look at it is even taking a step back from that to ask, how have we gotten to this point? You know, what, what, <laughs> why are we doing DevOps? Why do we need DevSecOps? And it, it's a bit of a overused marketing term, but a lot of it comes down to what we see in organizations is a push for you know, so-called digital transformation. Mm -hmm. And you know, what, what does that mean? It means you know, we need to be able to you know, quickly, uh, you know, in, in an agile manner, re react to business conditions. We need to you know, be able to move faster and innovate more than we were before. And so you okay. look at organizations that are successful at this, and, and that's really required to stay afloat. Organizations that fail to do this, it's an existential risk, mm -hmm. right? So security people have, in, in a lot of cases, a, a, a somewhat narrow view of risk. You know, we don't want breaches. We don't want uh, right. you know, confidentiality, integrity, availability. From an executive level, it's a question of like availability of the business, right? Right. I mean, ask it's Kodak revenue. Yeah, right. Ask, ask Kodak how their digital transformation initiative uh, went, and and there's nobody to answer that because it didn't go well, right? And so what we see at the executive level is this push, and we've got to move faster, we've got to be innovative, we've got to be responsive. That then gets pushed to the technology teams. You know, this we're going to make this cultural change mm -hmm. to DevOps, and that's I think an important thing to understand is DevOps is at its heart a cultural change of we're going to break down the barriers between the development teams, the operations teams, so we can right. iterate faster. Mm -hmm. That then pulls in a lot of technologies, you know, cloud, containers, serverless, uh, all, all right. of these new... Kubernetes, you, all kinds of stuff. All, all yeah. that stuff, because right. that's, you know, at a technological level, what's required to be able to cycle quickly. And we also see adoption of new techniques like, you know, continuous integration, continuous delivery, you know, CICD pipelines. Right. The security people, a lot of the more traditional security people that are watching this are like, what the hell is going on? Like, what are you doing <laughs> yeah. to me? If they even see it coming. See, exactly. That's part of the exactly. challenge. And, and I think that's a great point is, and, and for, the, for the smarter, the leading security people, they see this and they can read the tea leaves mm -hmm. and see this is where the organization's going. They're going to be doing a lot of things that are super uncomfortable for me mm -hmm. because I'm used to my annual pen test, my quarterly code review, my, right. whatever, whatever right. the tempo My the monthly vulnerability scan. <laughs> exactly, right? And the, the, the more traditional like security curmudgeon that's like uh, whenever anybody comes and says, well, this is what we want to do, it's like, well, fill out this form. No, you can't do that, <laughs> right? <laughs> Those folks are getting marginalized because at the, at the, at the C level, they're saying we need to go this way mm -hmm. because if we don't, 
right. the business is going to be around. So I don't care right. if we're PCI compliant if we're like laying people off and shutting the deal down. Yeah. The smarter security folks are looking at this and saying, we see where this is going. Let's, from a security practice standpoint, let's skate to where the puck is going. Yeah. And let's find a way to use this transformation that's going to happen whether I want it to or not. Mm -hmm. Let's find a way to use this transformation to accomplish the goals that we have, which are, again, confidentiality, integrity, availability, right. you know, compliance, and, and yeah, so yeah. on and so forth. Right. So I think what needs to happen, I, I want to get your take on this, is we need to start thinking about integrating security capabilities earlier in the DevOps pipeline. Right. F basically, right from the time of code check-in mm -hmm. and have to integrate a set, a set of tools. I don't think it's one. I think there's various tools that come along in that chain that allow you to pass certain gates in a more automated fashion to, to do that base validation of security and compliance. So from your perspective, where do you see those different tie-in points? Mm -hmm. Because I think that's the that's what everybody really wants to understand is where are those points in the process that I should be tying into security and what kind of tools should I be looking at? Right, right. And so the everybody wants to shift left, also a term that's been <laughs> yeah. just like savagely beaten <laughs> beyond anything that it, it ever it ever deserved. Um, but but that's the idea. Like how do we get security meshed in with what we're doing, move it earlier in the process so that we. You know, at, the, at the end of things, we're not doing security as the last thing. Because, right. again, in a continuous world, there isn't an end of things, yeah. right? It's yeah. not like, okay, we've got our quarterly deployment coming up. Because it, if you did that, right. you would be doing it multiple times a day. Exactly. Right? right. It, because of the release cycles right, are, right. are potentially multiple times a day now. Mm -hmm. And also what we see with the the, the, the new technologies, cloud, serverless, all this things, all, all those things, that makes everything much harder. It makes things easier for developers. It gives them a lot of options. Right. From a security standpoint, it's a nightmare. Yep. We didn't solve, as an industry, we didn't have a good handle on application security when we were looking at monolithic right. line of business apps. Right. Single, single language monolithic apps that went through a waterfall process. We did a horrible job protecting those. Right, now right. we break these things up into mini pieces, right? right. Distribute them and various places, multi-cloud and hybrid, on-prem, et cetera, um, and they're now they're multi-language, yeah, we just, we, we made it really Yeah, more it's, 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 it's a, a clown show of yeah. it's a nightmare, a nightmare yeah. for a lot of security folks. And, you know, and, and it's interesting because there's a lot of talk in the industry, especially in the federal space, but in general, about like the software bill of materials, right? Mm -hmm. And that's, that makes a lot of sense for these monolithic applications. Okay, for this application, what open source do we have in there? What, right. what, what, yeah. what are the different pieces? But when you look at these modern applications, like really you've got to have an architectural bill of materials. Mm -hmm. and, and a lot of that starts with a threat model to understand what are the pieces of the system, how are they talking to one another, right. and for each of these pieces of the system, what are the things that roll up into that? Right. And, and and the way that the way that we look at it, and this is evolving, but is you know, for, for each of these chunks, you've got I, I call it the four C's, for lack of a better anything. But it, you look at well, you've got code that you wrote. Right? Mm -hmm. So this is the custom logic that, right. that you're doing that's yep. doing something valuable. You know that then pulls in different components, you know, open source components that are, are doing yep. you know, the you know, frameworks and, and are mm -hmm. doing you know, different you know, commodity tasks. That then sits on some type of compute, whether those are you know, fixed servers, which are 
going away, but not as fast as anybody thought. You know, whether those are you know virtual machines, whether those are right. cloud servers, or if they are containers or serverless, right? But there's something right. that is executing all of this stuff. And then all of that lives in a cloud environment where you're concerned about the configuration. And right. so are my S3 buckets uh, configured, correctly, configured correctly? So I'm not leaking data. Right, right. right. Yeah. You know, what are my IAM permissions between yeah. these chunks and AWS and whatnot? And so so when you take a step back and look at, like, here's all the stuff that rolls into you know this particular application, mm-hmm. the different services and whatnot. Then you look at a, a CICD pipeline, and the question is, how can we provide insight earlier in the process with that. Right. Um, and again, so you have things that will scan code, you know, static, dynamic. Yep. I asked, you've got the software composition analysis right. that lets you look at components. Yep. You've got your, your network and infrastructure scanning uh, that looks at compute as well as some understanding of the container vulnerabilities. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, And you've got you know cloud configuration that you can check to look for your known misconfigurations. And so there's a lot of there's a lot of data sources that you have, you know, that you can potentially mm-hmm. check very frequently, you know, on, on each check-in. Right. The, the question is, what do you do with this information? Uh, everybody, I, I think, in a perfect world, security would love to be able to you know, stop the pipeline, right? Like, uh, you know, the, the Toyota you know, assembly line, yeah. like, oh, this part's not right. Like, I'm going to pull the thing, and right. everybody's, let's fix this problem before it goes on down the yeah. line. From a pragmatic standpoint, from, you know, just looking at the politics in an organization, Security folks got to be real careful about when and how they do that, uh-huh. because because the business is going to move forward. Exactly, and it better be the right decision. Because if you slow down the business, the, they're they're not going to let you come back the next time. Exactly right. Like everybody gets one right, right? <laughs> and and that's what we see with a lot of technologies. You know, web application firewalls. Well, let's mm-hmm. put them in blocking mode. Well, let's stop this transaction. <laughs> right. Okay. Well, let's just put it in, in listen mode. <laughs> right. And we'll look at the logs. Never. Yeah. Right. <laughs> same thing with IDS and IPS. Exa- right? Exactly. We never right? put them in blocking mode. Right? Exactly. Right. Yeah. So just like, hey, we're watching this stuff go through B- bad stuff, guys. Is anybody listening? Alert. No. Alert. Yeah. Alert. Yeah. Alert. <laughs> Somebody over there in the sock handling that? Yeah. Anybody? <laughs> and so, uh, so, so that's something that I think security folks need to be cognizant of is they have a role to inform the development teams uh, of problems. And if they can do that earlier in the process, yeah. that's, that's tremendously valuable. Right. To look at blocking, you've got to be very judicious about when you use that power. It's, you mm-hmm. know, with you know, the Spider-Man, mm-hmm. you know, great power <laughs> comes with great responsibility. Mm-hmm. And uh, for security people with great power comes, don't mess up or else you're not going to have great power anymore. <laughs> right. And, uh, and and so that's, I think, important for when, when we work with security teams and looking at this, like, okay, well, you want to provide information early, but be very careful about when you want to step in and stop the process. Right. And I think it's also important to realize that when you're running these tools or, or different tools or different scanning in a CICD pipeline, that's not the sum total of your security program. That's something that you're doing, again, to provide... That, that's just the application piece of the, the pie, right? Exactly. Yeah. Oh. Because there's more to it than, than that. That You still have data security in there. You still have at least identity and user mm-hmm. requirements at a bare minimum. Um, and then it depends on, on where you're running. You may have more. But yeah, that's just the application component. Exactly. And if you look at the type of testing that you can get into a pipeline... You have to provide results that are, are available quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, you know what we hear in, in in some environments is you know security has an eight to twelve minute time budget of this mm-hmm. is what you get to weigh in, right? and that that varies in different environments. Mm-hmm. But but you know it, it's important I think for security to look at testing in a pipeline. Mm-hmm. What's your time budget? They also have to provide results that are of high value mm-hmm. to the dev team. Right. Right. So is the developer going to look at this and say, oh, I'm glad I know about this now. 
let me fix that before we move on right. down the road. Do I have a malicious component that I pulled down from my Git repository? Mm-hmm. Oh, there's a newer version that resolves that vulnerability. It's an easy swap out done. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Yeah. You know, versus, oh, well, you, you've got uh, you know, XYZ, this is a medium. Like maybe yeah. you're worried, like, uh, you know, t- We'll sort that out. Like we'll, yeah. we'll sort that out in 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 in, a, in bulk or in a batch later. Uh, and they also, you know, this goes back to like if you're actually blocking the pipeline, they have to the results have to be right. You can't be sending results to the developers that have false positives mm-hmm. and things of that right. nature because yeah. again, that's that's a great way to get marginalized. And so the type of testing that you do in a pipeline is not the sum total of your security program because you probably have you know at certain checkpoints. Okay, we're going to do mm-hmm. a more thorough. Right. Static or dynamic analysis. We're gonna. This is when we're gonna send in the manual pen testers. Are gonna work on this. Yeah. And so I think it's important when you look at in integrating into pipelines. What are your goals for that? And understand that that's not gonna be the sum total of your software assurance or your application security program. Yeah. So I think you hit on four points that are really interesting: code, mm-hmm. static analysis, and traditionally components, mm-hmm. software composition analysis, mm-hmm. two easy points in the pipeline mm-hmm. to check. Um, compute, mm-hmm. not as easy sometimes, right? Because those scripts are getting developed and spun up on the fly. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are some interesting technologies starting to come around that's starting to look at, at some of those uh, configuration files to make sure things get spun up correctly. Right. Uh, same with cloud, mm-hmm. right? Um, it's all about configuration in cloud, really. Mm-hmm. I think that's where we see the biggest security gap mm-hmm. when it comes to cloud is misconfiguration. Right, that's, right. What, that's what allows hackers in. I mean... You know, Paul left his API to his Kubernetes environment open and somebody spun up a container in that environment, right? right? right. I mean, that was a misconfiguration. Mm-hmm. It's, it's an oversight. Mm-hmm. So where does Denim Group then, are you then helping your clients really kind of figure out that journey of all those little tie-in points? I mean, is that really where you guys are focused? Yeah, I mean, so we provide the advisory services around that. The testing yeah. services, you know, as well as the advisory services around here's how you, you know, in, in, in your environment, you know, given your regulatory situation, mm-hmm. given you know, the culture of your organization, these different factors, here's how you can position yourself for success. Um, and then obviously the testing services associated with that. And then we also have our, our thread fix platform that pulls in a lot of this data and mm. allows for, you know, allows for a central point where security teams can see this is the tempo of testing that we've been right. seeing. These are results that we've got. Okay. This is how we've communicated these to the dev teams uh, you know, and, and allows you kind of that view across the teams in or uh, across the teams around your organization, yeah. because that's you know, typically the organizations that we're working with are, you know, have teams around the world developing software, multiple applications, multiple testing technologies right um, just demographically that tends yeah. to be the folks that we work with yeah um, it, it, and so you're actually helping customers bring the promise of DevSecOps to light let Let's hope. Right, right. I mean, well, and helping, and, and as we talked about earlier, for a lot of the more traditional security folks, like this is, I know, it's, 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 it's scary because it is. it's not the quarterly, it's not the annual, it's right. like suddenly this is continuous. But again, it's a question of how do we, how can we stay relevant? How yeah. do we, how do we maintain our seat at the table? And for the leading security folks, how do I use this transition as a way to, you know, get myself into the process. Yeah. You know, how can I hack the this digital transformation initiative yeah. to make sure that I'm accomplishing my goals which are you know, to, you know right. compliance and security and things of that. I, I always tell when I when I always do this talk, I I said the first I, I said you, you 
find out if you have a DevOps team mm-hmm. and then go talk to them. Right. <laughs> and that's, let's start with just basic communication. Basic communication. Just, just the, the fact of realizing, oh yeah, I have one of those teams and maybe I should go find out what they're doing because I better be informed to know how my security program needs to fit into what they're doing. Right. And understanding, I, I, I come out of a software development background. Um, and uh, and that's a lot of the stuff that we we've done at Denver obviously reflects my background in software development and so I am fortunate from a in a DevSecOps world in that I, I did a lot of software development right that lets me talk developer yeah a lot of security folks came out of an audit or a pen test background or a network security uh, background exactly and so they it's it's not a given that mm-hmm. they understand well hey what's an integrated development environment mm-hmm. you know why would i want to use kubernetes right uh, you know like what you know how yeah. do you your know, defect trackers you know jenkins cicd uh, your pipelines and so that's in a lot of cases there's an education component, a self-education mm-hmm. component that security folks need, and that's a great way to do that is you know, introduce yourself, buy somebody some lunch, ask questions, and, and hear the answers. Yeah. And, and that's something that, uh, you know, that uh, ability to understand, not, not your enemy, but understand the people that you're trying to work with, right. you know, given that understanding, that's going to make you a lot more effective in working with yeah. those folks. Because you can Definitely. say, and, and another point that I think is really important to make, from a curmudgeon standpoint, there's a lot of focus on, oh, okay, well, you know, those developers, they don't care about security. They're just doing whatever they want. And like, ah, yeah, those those guys. The developers that I've worked with care about security, but they also have to care about new features that got right. promised Correct. by uh, an important VP to an important customer, right? Yeah. Like, right. You know, that, that, you, their, their requirements are really business-driven. Right. They're not security-driven. It's not that they don't want to build secure code. They may not have time to build secure code. So if you give them effective ways... Uh, of tooling mm-hmm. to check along the process and give them the information back, I think in right. a very efficient way, mm-hmm. right? Tied back into their developer tools, right? right. Maybe it's a Slack or a hip chat mm-hmm. or a Jira ticket or whatever. But if you understand that I've got a critical vulnerability and it's coming back into a tool set that they're using as part of developing against their requirements, mm-hmm. they're more likely to fix that thing right there right. because they have the data. It's really easy for them to do it. And, and that will result in better secure code down the pipeline um, instead of waiting to the end of the pipeline, which is where we traditionally are. Right, right. And we've seen uh, just from some of the environments we've looked at, we've seen like a 44% decrease in the mean time to fix for vulnerabilities mm-hmm. when you communicate with developers yeah. and the tools they're already using. And so yeah. that's that's a very powerful metaphor Yes, because too many organizations are still, hey, I did some security stuff and here's a yeah, here's 300 the page. Yeah, yeah, here you go. I, yeah. I put sticky notes on the stuff that I thought was really bad. Like, yeah, uh, yeah thanks. I, I have a special drawer like really low in my <laughs> desk that I use to file all of these reports that I get from you security guys. Yeah, and it's aligned with a trash yeah, bag. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's actually the shredders. Yeah, yeah, thank exactly. you. You have another report? Right. Um, yeah, integration's important. Right. If people want to learn more about Denim Group, where should they go? Um, they can go to you know, denimgroup.com. Uh, obviously, you know, main website, we've got a blog where we post a lot of this stuff. Uh, you know, folks that want to know about the ThreadFix platform, it's threadfix.it. Get it? ThreadFix it. Uh, that's, that's clever. Uh, nice. yeah. <laughs> um, they can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Daniel Cornell. Um, and uh, you talk about these things on Twitter. And uh, yeah, I mean, reach out on Twitter, reach out via the web. Uh, we're always happy to talk about this stuff. Awesome. Thanks for joining us, Dan. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you soon.